You're listening to You Might Have a Point. In each episode, I bring on a different guest to discuss politics and related topics. The point of the show is to get to know more about what the guest believes and why, which is why we primarily discuss their own views and not my own. I believe in learning about a broad range of viewpoints so that even when you disagree with someone about a lot of things, you can still sometimes say, you know, you might have a point. You can find out more at youmighthaveapoint.com. I am pleased to welcome to the podcast today Stephen Nelson. Stephen is a reporter covering the White House and Congress for the New York Post, uh, previously working at U.S. News and World Report and the Washington Washington Examiner. Stephen, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Stephen. So uh, the way I like to start off each podcast is just kind of with uh, a general question, and you're actually the first straight news reporter that I've interviewed. So feel free to not answer this or answer this in whatever way you want. But how would you describe yourself in terms of your ideology or worldview? Uh, I I would say that, you know, as someone who is a straight news reporter, I I try not to be too firm in any of my beliefs. I think that um, our profession, uh, you should try to be open minded. Uh, You should try to report, you know, as objectively as possible, Mm -hmm. other people's opinions, and also events and facts as uh, you see them. So I, I try not to, you know, have too strong of a, of a personal opinion on anything. I certainly do have my opinions on different issues, uh, but I always try to be open-minded. And you know, so, sometimes, you know, when you report information that's contrary to your own beliefs or uh, or, or feelings, you know, I, I feel like that's a, a moment of pride almost for for me uh, sure. to be able to do that. Cool. So uh, it's curious that you say that particularly about not having too strong of an opinion on something do you think someone say someone's pretty far to the left or far to the right do you think that makes it harder for them to be a straight news reporter i think so but also you know if if you're very strongly motivated by a particular issue it could you know produce better reporting um you know if someone cares a lot about um you know, I don't know, I guess you could say police brutality, they'd mm-hmm. be a lot more invested in, you know, trying to document or, you know, un- under ideal circumstances, anyways, right. they'd right. be, uh, you know, more motivated to do a more solid job and be able to, uh, you know, report things better. Um, certainly, it can go the other way, too. And I think with the past four years, of, uh, President Trump, with things being so divisive, uh, you know, sometimes it enables, um, you know, more empty opinions, mm. more so than reporting. And, you know, I think that that really kind of colored the public's perception of what a reporter is and should be. Um, and I, I think under ideal circumstances, you know, it's it's more about, you know, reporting facts and you know, reporting movement sure. in the news more so than just sharing your opinion. Sure, that makes sense. Uh, is there a particular style or angle or approach that you br- try to bring to your reporting? Uh, you know, I, I'd say that in general, I, I just try not to um, write boring stories. Okay. Um, and I, I, I don't know, maybe, you know, some people could say, you know, at, at certain points, anyhow, that, that that could be, you know, kind of a sen- sensationalist mentality. But at the same time, you know, if you're not writing stories in a way that engage people and, you know, make them, uh, you know, interested, it, mm-hmm. there's really no point in doing it. Uh, I mean, if no one's reading your story, why are you putting in the effort to write it? So I, I think that what I try to do, anyhow, is, you know, try to try to write things that I would like to read myself, you know, something that's uh, interesting, maybe a little bit offbeat, even uh, if you're writing about something that's overcovered. Um, so, so I'd say that's my general approach. Um, and you know, obviously, of course, you, you try to include uh, some balance in stories and to be accurate. I, I think that's 
very important as well. Got it. Yeah, I was looking at a couple of your clips, and I saw one time you asked President Trump about Joe Exotic. Um, <laughs> so I thought yeah. that was an interesting yeah. question. Um, I, I did, and you know, I, I I don't know how I'll feel about that in ten years. I mean, that's a question maybe thirty-one-year-old uh, me is more enthused about than you know forty-one-year-old me. <laughs> yeah, fair. But yeah, you know, fair. certainly a lot of people watched that, and I got a lot of feedback about that one. Okay, so let's see. I'm. Curious if you could just describe what it's like covering the Biden White House as compared to the Trump White House in terms of what it's like on the ground, how responsive people are, um, how well organized things are or are not, things like that. You know, it's it's shockingly different. Um, one of the first things that changed when the Obama crew came to town is that they imposed pretty strict rules on access to the White House grounds. So throughout uh, the year of the coronavirus pandemic, when Trump was in office, uh, there were no limits on reporter access to the White House grounds. You could just show up whenever you wanted and walk past the gates um, and go into the workspaces. Uh, you know, it, there was, you know, potem- potentially that wasn't the best health situation and, you know, mm-hmm. people self-policed. Um, you know, it's it was a matter of, you know, I'm not going every day or very often at all because of the peer pressure there to you know, not crowd into the, the spaces. But when the Biden crew came to town, uh, they very strictly imposed rules on who could access the White House grounds in a particular day. So what that means is that I can't go to the White House, you know, except for when I'm up in the briefing room and no one else can either unless they win a very, very small number of lottery seats. Um, okay. And we also get tested now before going in. So that that has really changed in terms of the access that reporters can have. Also, there's obviously a, a big change in tone that the Biden administration is going for. It's not always panned out this way, but the uh, Biden administration's approach toward individual reporters generally has been trying to you know, kill people with kindness, whereas the Trump administration approach was a little bit different with uh, with a lot of reporters. It was, you know, if, if you did something that they didn't like, and, you know, myself included, you know, you'd get a off-the-record call of someone you know, getting very upset with you. Uh, whereas the Biden administration people, you know, it's either they, they don't respond or they're very friendly to your face and you never get any response for your request to comment. Um, so that's certainly one uh, one change that a lot of reporters have noticed that, you know, they try to kill kill you with kindness rather than, you know, kill you with, with antagonism. Yeah. Makes sense. Um, what about in terms of, uh, I guess, the schedule? I think one thing that's always interesting to hear about is just whether events are held on time, um, whether you give a notice about things on a regular basis, or whether it's just everyone's kind of confused about what's going on. How, how has that played out? So one notable feature of the Biden administration is that uh, more often than not, they call what's, what's called a lid early in the afternoon. Um, or at least mid-afternoon, which means there's nothing more happening that day. Everyone can mm-hmm. go home from the White House. Um, and that is something that would basically never happen with Trump. Uh, it could Things could stretch you know, late into the night because he, he was frequently traveling past midnight, and you'd have to stay at the White House if, if you had pool duty that day. You'd have to stay there until 1 or 2 in the morning when he'd come back on the helicopter. You know, you'd be exhausted, and uh, then you wake up the next morning, and he's tweeting at 5 in the morning, a whole series of you know, pretty wild, wild tweets you know that you'd have to cover because they would be news breaking. Um, so it, there's a big difference with that. Um, with the in terms of lateness, they could all be late. Um, okay. 
Biden, a lot of times people are, are waiting for him for events for, you know, perhaps up to an hour. Uh, Trump was also like that. And, and, you know, people would be standing on the lawn waiting for him to show up and it would be 95 degrees and everyone would be sweating and they'd be waiting more than an hour or it'd be freezing and, you know, there'd be snow and everyone would be waiting for more than an hour. So I, I think that, you know, presidential lateness is something that's probably going to be a, a steady thing <laughs> throughout the <laughs> yeah, administration. Yeah, sounds like it. Yeah. I think maybe um, the second Bush was one exception to that from what I've heard, but in general, it makes sense. Um, so let's see. I was just wondering if you could talk some about how COVID has impacted. You've already mentioned it a little bit, but just how you do your job is um, reporting. Have you transitioned to doing the things that you can online or and then second question, follow up being uh, how have things started to change once vaccines became available? Sure. So, uh, you know, I think reporting was one of the last professions really to change with the coronavirus. Uh, you know, we all were still crowded around congressmen on Capitol Hill and we we're all still going to the White House, uh, you know, until you know, probably at least a month into the pandemic. Um, I, I think that a lot of us just weren't that concerned about the impact on us. And, you know, okay. I think a lot of politicians, you know, feel kind of invincible on their own, you know, I think probably a different thing, you know, with us, it's more age and with them, it's more, you know, perhaps power and feeling, okay. feeling a little bit, uh, you know, above everything, but um, certainly it was slower for us and things were actually kind of exciting to begin with. Whereas a lot of people, you know, were stuck at home being bored. Uh, you know, we, we were able to go out and, you know, still go to the important debates on coronavirus stimulus on Capitol Hill or go to President Trump's, you know, press conferences, which, you know, the whole country was watching. Um, so for us, it was exciting for a while. But, you know, I've talked to other reporters lately and, you know, we really felt like the pandemic, you know, really, you know, what was a kind of exciting moment for reporting has kind of become, you know, a real drag lately. You know, we're, a lot of us are working from home most of the time. Um, the vaccinations really haven't changed that. I mean, we're, we're all vaccinated pretty much, but mm. uh, the restrictions haven't come off. So uh, I, I think we're, we're all just ready for the pandemic to end, which I'm, I'm sure is the case with you and just about everyone else out there. So hopefully, hopefully that's soon. Yeah, I imagine that reporters tend to thrive on interaction and that's very difficult to do your job um whereas i'm a software engineer most people i know are like yeah i could work from home forever <laughs> um yeah yeah well you know it's I'm, I'm ready for for the end to working at home yep sweet um so yeah i did see i think just today maybe um biden said that uh you didn't have to wear masks indoors um, at the White House, and he also tweeted out something similar as a sort of general, you know, quote-unquote policy for the nation. Um, so are, do you think that with that happening, there's maybe going to be more changes to come down the road, and it won't it won't be too far until the end is near, or what do you think? So, you know, I, I would certainly hope so, and I, I think a lot of reporters are hoping so, but the Biden administration, they've, they've been very cautious about uh, things uh, so far. And, you know, you talk about how there's the CDC guidance today on how you don't have to wear a mask if you're indoors and you're vaccinated. Um, I mean, they previously said you didn't have to wear a mask outdoors if you were vaccinated. And mm -hmm. President Biden is continuing to walk around outdoors, not near anyone wearing a mask. So, you know, today he apparently took off his mask when he was at an indoor meeting with Republican senators. And, you know, he seems perhaps more conscious of the optics of, you know, wanting to 
to comply with the latest CDC recommendations. But I think they've been very cautious. And yesterday I, I walked to the White House because it was our, our turn for the briefing. And on my way in in the morning, probably 90% of the people who I passed on the sidewalk were wearing masks outdoors. And I assume that almost all of them were probably fully vaccinated. So I think that the mood in DC and the mood um, among you know a certain type of person who I imagine you know, it, it's about the same with the, the Biden administration officials making the call. You know, it's very cautious, not wanting to get too far ahead of things. And, you know, part of the reason probably is because the president is 78 years old. And even if there is only a 5% chance of the vaccine failing with him, I mean, is that a 5% chance they want to take? Probably not. Um, so I, I certainly hope things are going to change soon. And they've talked about opening up the briefing room to 50% capacity in the next few weeks. Um, and, you know, I, I think some people kind of doubt that they're going to be doing that in the next few weeks, maybe a month or two. Um, there's talk about it, but, you know, I, I don't think it's going to happen as fast as it could. That's very interesting. Um, how much of it do you think is rooted out of a sense of personal caution as opposed to caution about the optics of what that looks like and wanting to, you know, encourage Americans generally to be very cautious? You know, it's probably a bit of both. Um, you know, I, I think certainly early on in the Biden administration, he wanted to, you know, s signify that uh, there was a break with the Trump administration. Uh, President Trump, of course, very infrequently wore a mask. And, you know, ultimately he called the coronavirus and there was a, you know, a whole lot of whole lot of uncertainty caused by that. Um, but, you know, once the CDC guidance changed regarding outdoor mask use, I, I think it was less of Biden wanting to send a specific message and either more, you know, as he says, anyhow, more a matter of habit um, or a matter of personal caution, um, which he also seemed to hint at in a TV interview when he told, you know, a, a, um, he told a MSNBC reporter uh, recently that, you know, it, there's a chance that people are going to come up to him and that's why he's wearing a mask still. So I, I think it's probably a little bit of both, but over time it's probably shifted a little bit away from setting an example more to either, you know, personal protection or, you know, just he hasn't gotten used to the change. Okay. Got it. Um, so now I'd like to run a run a, over a couple of uh, your recent articles with you. Um, one was, uh, and both of these are going to be in the, from the New York Post, but uh, the first one is McConnell asks Biden to ditch the 1619 project, where he's basically writing a letter to the education secretary and Biden um, talking about... Um, their guidance encouraging, uh, actually, give me just one moment. I'm going to pull up the exact phrasing because um, I do think the phrasing is important. A rule proposed this month, and I'm quoting from the article now, a rule proposed this month by the Education Department says financial grants could encourage schools to incorporate teaching and learning practices that reflect the diversity, identities, history, histories, contributions, and experience of all students. The plan cites as examples, the 1619 Project and the work of Ibram X. Kendi, author of the best-selling book, How to Be an Anti-Racist. And so McConnell, in response to that, was criticizing the, quote, historically dubious 1619 Project and encouraged uh, the education secretary to rethink that. Um, so I'm just uh, wondering if I could ask a couple follow-up questions there. Uh, I guess first be, do you know if the secretary or anyone from the White House has offered a response to Biden's letter? You know, none that I'm aware of, and I'm not sure that that letter was so much seeking a response as making a point. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, I, I think that there's a lot of debate about this uh, 1969 project, which for 
people who were unaware is a New York Times Magazine project to discuss the history and legacy of slavery in the United States and you know how, how it bears on society today. And you know what a lot of the Republican and conservative critics of the uh, 1619 project have pointed out is that you know it it it, it has you know some errors in interpretation um, that you know some historians, some prominent historians at Princeton and Brown and other notable schools have said it's just very sloppy and in one of the most commonly cited uh, errors that uh, that the project allegedly made was uh, that they were talking about the American Revolution and claiming that the one of the primary causes for the American Revolution is uh, the colonists wanting to keep their slaves. Um, that, that's been a real point where people have pushed back on and there, uh, some of the historians are saying that in fact, the American Revolution opened the door to abolitionism and then empowered the, uh, you know, at, at the time, kind of nascent uh, criticism of slavery by Quakers. Um, so the, the, the project is, is kind of uh, lumped in with a uh, Republican and conservative criticism of what's called critical race theory, which is kind of an amorphous focus on race as being a uh, primary driver of uh, social issues. Uh, last year, President Trump signed an order banning the use of federal funds to train uh, federal government employees on racial sensitivity if they're talking about white privilege or uh, critical race theory. And it's it's kind of a, a bit of a nebulous term, but it, it falls into that category where Republicans and conservatives are trying to restrain what they see as a, uh, a disproportionate focus on uh, the history of slavery and the legacy of racism and how that uh, that really defines American society. Or in their opinion, you know, it doesn't, uh, in their opinion you know, American society has progressed a lot and that's what should be focused on rather than the more negative aspects. Got it. Yeah, you mentioned critical race theory. Um, one thing that's been interesting for me, my wife is actually in grad school for education right now and taking a class on diversity and related topics. And they mentioned critical race theory and its sort of academic background. I think it's become more the term has been broad, more broadly known, but there's also a lot of confusion as to what it means because um, there's the concept of critical theory generally, which I think it's fair to say is a left-leaning sort of scholarly critique, and then there's critical race theory specifically. Um, so it's it's not completely out of nowhere, but it also I think in the in the common parlance means something very different from you know what what academics mean it. Use it yeah, to well, me. You know, it's it's a term that I I got to admit I wasn't too familiar with until it started to become a political issue, mm -hmm. and so, you know I, I think once um, you know you, you hear the definition you say oh you know maybe I was aware of this kind of uh, line of thinking or you know what critics might call an ideology, um, and it's it's certainly something that uh, seems to be a, a big focus of Republican pushback at the moment, um, you know in part because of the Black Lives Matter protest last year and. The, the feeling of you know some people that uh, you know the criticism of American society is uh, too broad and uh, and yeah I mean I, I I imagine that we're going to be hearing quite a bit more about this to come. Yeah, um, that that was actually going to be my follow up question, and you already sort of answered it, which was that you know it is basically just posturing um, from McConnell. Um, I think he is pretty savvy political operator and probably senses that this is one issue where um culturally he has the upper hand um do you think uh that he he and the other republican conservative leaders are going to continue hammering this home and uh, how do you think they might do that 
Yeah, you know, absolutely do. And I agree with you about McCoddle being a you know, pretty shrewd operator. I, I think that that's, you know, one of the few things that people would agree on across party lines in Washington. Um, I mean, you just look at what he did with the Supreme Court and, in, in, uh, you know, enabling it to really shift in a more conservative direction uh, through his tactics. Um, but Mitch McConnell, you know, I, I think certainly is going to be making more of this because, uh, you know, as you mentioned, it's an area where probably Republicans have an edge culturally. Um, and, you know, I, I think there are other issues as well uh, that you see this on, you know, the uh, there's a Democratic attempt in Congress to uh, basically federalize some election policies. And Mitch McConnell was, you know, testifying in a committee just the other day this week about that and saying how terrible it is that this federal takeover of elections. And you think about it and you think, well, you know, there's not 60 votes in the Senate for this bill. Why is he putting in effort to show up in committee and make a big deal about this? And it's part of the reason is, um, I mean, it's it plays well, you know, it, it plays well to the base and, you know, Probably Republicans have an advantage out there with this. So why wouldn't why wouldn't you criticize uh, the other side for doing something where, you know, more people probably agree with you and there's some potential political benefit to it? I mean, it's politics, and I don't think that you should be surprised that politicians are, you know, focusing on things that, uh, you know, are to their advantage. Uh, you know, even if that doesn't necessarily reflect a change, uh, it doesn't necessarily manifest in a change in government policy. I mean, I think with here, the debate over the 1619 project, there are already school districts across the country that are using it, probably the federal education department incentivizing it, you know, it, I mean, maybe it can have some marginal impact on how widely it's taught. But, um, you know, I, I think Republicans are criticizing it for not necessarily because they, they think they're going to kill this rule. But, uh, you know, bec because they're able to, you know, help support their side really in this broader cultural debate got it yeah i think uh, i listened to jonah goldberg's podcast and he's talked about how i forget who coined the term it might have been ben sass but ben sass has harped on this which is criticizing congress as a parliament of pundits um i think you know compared to maybe some other reporters you're still fairly early on in your career so i don't know if you've noticed any changes but um maybe you've talked to other reporters about this just I think you're right that politicians will always seize on the topics of the day, but I think it's gotten worse. And the amount of legislation certainly quantitatively has gone down. So uh, what's your take on that? Sure. And, uh, you, you know, I, I think that the uh, former libertarian congressman, Justin Amash, frequently would point this out on Twitter that uh, regular House members, they just don't have the power to influence legislation most meaningful bills are the results of grand compromises that leaders of the House and the Senate get together, they agree on, and then they present it on the floor. You're not usually amending bills, you're voting on deals that the leaders have hashed out. Um, and so, you know, I, I think that probably it being a Congress of pundits oftentimes is probably pretty accurate. There are, of course, exceptions where people are able to force amendments on the floor, but that's more the exception than the rule. Um, and I, I think that, you know, probably some of the people in Congress aren't too happy with their job being mostly punditry these days. Um, but certainly that's an observation out there. And I, I, I haven't covered the Hill too closely through most of my time, but I, it's not always like that. It's, it's historically drift, drifted recently to the direction of being more top down than it is for being bottom up. Okay. I know that certain congressmen are upset about that as well. Got it. Yeah, I think one 
observation that people were making with Biden having obviously such a historic role in the Senate and a lot of experience in it as an institution, they were speculating that he would be more interested in sort of the deal making and uh, preserving the institution of the Senate. Um, how have you seen that play out, if at all, so far? Well, today he hosted, I, I believe it was six Republican senators at the Oval Office. Um, afterwards, the Republican senators were saying great things about the meeting. Uh, they're you know, saying they think he's an honest broker with coming around to compromise on infrastructure. Uh, Yesterday, you know, there was a little bit of a different tone. Uh, he had Senate uh, Minority Leader Mitch McConnell and House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy over, and they said that they told him just straight up that they weren't going to raise taxes. Um, but, you know, I, I think that Biden's experience being in D.C. for decades and decades and decades, you know, I, I think there's something to be said with that. Um, you know, he has had his entire adult life dreaming of being president, and he's someone who has seen other people try and fail to create legacies. He was very critical in one of his books about uh, Jimmy Carter's presidency, how that just kind of flopped. Uh, so I think that there definitely is some savviness. You know, some some people criticize Biden as not being all there, but, you know, he, he managed to have this uh, $1.9 trillion COVID-19 relief bill rammed through without a single Republican vote in an evenly divided Senate with Democrats holding fewer than 10 seat majority in the House. And now he has this $2.3 trillion infrastructure bill, $1.8 trillion family social planning uh, bill. And conceivably, Democrats could just ram both of these through because of a ruling from the Senate parliamentarian. Um, that's probably not going to happen because of centrist Democrats breaking. But certainly, he's making an outreach effort to Republicans. They're receptive. And uh, I mean, it's conceivable that he could pass other major legislation. and. You know, perhaps if these big transformative bills are passed and, you know, they're passed without a whole ton of uproar and acrimony in the public, um, you know, perhaps that does say something for Biden's experience as a senator and being in D.C. for so long. Okay, so follow up on that uh, parliamentarian question. I must have missed this, but has that ruling already been made or is it speculated that they would have the parliamentarian do that or if not fire the parliamentarian and get a new one. <laughs> right. Well, you know, people were thinking maybe they would fire the parliamentarian when they said with the first stimulus bill that they couldn't include the $15 minimum wage or Pelosi's, mm -hmm. uh, the, the subway in near her district in California, but they didn't fire the parliamentarian and the parliamentarian subsequently ruled that the Democrats have two more shots this year to pass bills through budget reconciliation. So that means that if the Democrats held together, which is a big if, because there, there are various points, you know, everyone wants to influence the bills and they're sure. talking off at the moment. Uh, but this, the parliamentarian's recent ruling meant that they could use uh, reconciliation twice more so they can avoid the 60 vote uh, threshold in the Senate and just pass it, pass two more huge bills through budget reconciliation with a barest majority in Kamala Harris breaking a tie in the Senate. Uh, so, so that's a done deal. But, of course, Joe Manchin is saying he's uncomfortable with the size of the spending. Uh, you know, his vote alone could derail it in the Senate. And then there are also a bunch of New York area Democrats who are saying they want to repeal the $10,000 a year cap on uh, state and local taxes that can be deducted from federal taxes. And they're saying they're not going to support the big deals if they don't include this repeal. But Biden doesn't support the salt cap repeal. So there's a big issue there, too. Um, 
so it's going to be exciting if you know something happens. It's 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 clearly a possibility that this all fizzles and they pass some much reduced bill. Uh, but right now, it's still conceivable that Biden could pass you know two more major bills uh, that are very bold and socially transformative, um, even without any Republican votes. So it's it's certainly in you know a moment where things could still be happening. Got it. Um, so my understanding, and this is actually based on our previous interview with Bill Share, is that typically in a congressional session, which is two years, you have one uh, budget for each year. And so that's how you can use reconciliation twice. But this ruling apparently is that even though they've already done it once, they can do it two more times. So how does that work? So, I, you know, <laughs> anything if you don't Congress know, that's fine. the safe answer is I don't know because if you say you've mostly with focused on the White but, House, I think. Yeah. But what you know, what I believe it is, is that the fiscal years and the calendar years don't really match up, and you know, there's not always okay. a budget that's passed in, through Congress in those years. So it's a bit of wizardry, and I mean, the reason why the parliamentarian ruling was a big deal is that people didn't know the answer. Um, they didn't know if they'd have two more shots at reconciliation this year. I see. Uh, the, the parliamentarian ruled that they do, and you know, I, I guess she's the, the wizard over on the hill, and what what yep. they say goes. So, <laughs> so they Got do. It. Um, then I want to follow up. I think uh, you're right that some people have accused Biden of being senile, perhaps, and I'm just wondering. Uh, you know, you mentioned him calling lids. That was certainly one angle of attack that people have used um, to criticizing. Uh, just his stamina, I suppose. Um, but what's your impression personally or from others that you've been able to gather in terms of, you know, how quick-footed he is, how cognitively sharp he is or is not? Sure. So, you know, this is a a thing that people in D.C. like to discuss a lot, people in politics. And, you know, not everything you hear is accurate or reportable regarding President Biden's mental acuity. <laughs> you know, there, sure. there are rumors flying, but uh, certainly one thing that is true is that he is a bit gaff prone and, you know, has been since he was, you know, his, a much yep. younger person. Um, he recently, very unfortunately, called Kamala Harris, uh, who is the vice president. He called her President Harris which certainly didn't sound good. Um, he, you know, he's had a few other things that are, you know, not quite, not quite so bad. Sure. But um, there's certainly enough there that you, you see him stammering and, you know, it could be clipped and it could be said that he seems to lose his train of thought or, or whatnot. Mm -hmm. um, I, he, you know, he hasn't to totally unwrapped, you know, to, to, you know, to be devil's advocate here, he's, he, he's, you know, he speaks in public usually at least once a day, and he completes his sentences usually. Um, you know, I, I don't think that there's any great evidence out there for his senility, although there are certainly gaffes that, you know, seem to make the case against him if people are so inclined. Got it. Um, and then, yeah, that was the other article I was going to ask you about um just talking about biden's uh, meeting today with uh six senator or uh, yeah six uh, republican senators on infrastructure um if you could just just talk a little bit more about what you've been able to gather for uh, on how that meeting went sure so i uh, i believe senator capito from west virginia and senator blunt from missouri afterwards 
um, said they, they thought that was a pretty good meeting. Uh, Senator Blunt said that there was going to be a Republican counterproposal coming next week. Um, you know, one, one of the points, sticking points is going to be, of course, the taxes, because with inflation fears all around, uh, you know, I think printing money is going to be something that people are more reluctant to do. And there's always a bit of, you know, creative math that goes on with these bills. You know, they're going to pay for them over 15 years or whatnot. And, you know, who, who knows if that actually is going to be a thing. Uh, but Republicans are talking about um, about uh, public-private partnerships potentially, you know, helping along with infrastructure, um, uh, user fees, and that sort of stuff. And Biden wants to increase taxes on the, uh, the higher-income people and on businesses and on investments. Um, you know, raising taxes is going to be a very difficult sell with Republicans. It's you know one thing that really unifies the Republican Party is opposition to high taxes, um, and it's. It's one thing where you think you, I mean, it's hard to imagine them even breaking off one or two Republican votes to raise taxes, just because that would be probably fatal to their career. Sure. Um, and so I, I think there's going to be a discussion about how the bill is going to be smaller, more focused on things that are traditionally infrastructure. And then, you know, perhaps the more creative math and, you know, justifications of other ways aside from tax increases that might pay for it. Okay. Um so I was wondering, I am curious about the idea of user fees. Uh, <laughs> is that some way of uh, determining who's using certain pieces of infrastructure and charging them for it? Uh... Sure. So that's, you know, that's the ba basic idea. And, you know, what exact shape they, they would take is, you know, to be up, determined. up in the air. President Biden's counterpoint to doing that kind of thing, you know, charging people for the infrastructure they use is that that would you know, potentially disproportionately impact the people who have the least amount of money to pay for this. Um, so th that's the counterpoint. Um, and, you know, I, I don't, I don't know if there's a way to structure these things so that you get around that point. Um, perhaps there is, perhaps there isn't, but that, that's, that's really where the, the battle lines are drawn. But I, I think that on that, you know, conceivably, just because the ideas aren't totally fleshed out, I think that perhaps you could see more wiggle room going forward on that, um, you know, if, if it's somehow constructed in a way that arguably isn't going to be really bearing down hard on the people who are least able to pay for it. Okay. Um, so now I'd like to wrap up with some slightly broader questions. Um, We've talked a little bit about Trump so far, but I'm curious uh, in terms of his you know, relationship with the press. We've mentioned how it was antagonistic at times um, or maybe throughout the presidency. But um, I'd like you to rate, if you could, uh, the media's job um, in terms of how they covered him, um, areas where they did poorly or well, in your opinion. So you mentioned the acrimony between Trump and the press, certainly when the cameras were on. Uh, you know, I think one thing that a lot of people uh, would note who have, you know, been in the room alone with him when the cameras aren't on is that he is very charming. He's he's very friendly to reporters. Um, you know, he enjoys interacting with people. And I, I think a lot of reporters, even the ones who aren't necessarily his biggest fans, would acknowledge that. I think that's something that doesn't didn't necessarily come through with his administration. Um, and I think that you know, one of the criticisms, I guess, of covering Trump would be that you know if, if you if you wanted a fight, he'd give you the fight, and if you asked him a question, you could ask him it with a smile on your face, and he would give you a very pleasant response, or you could ask it in a really 
mean voice you kind of coming at him and he'll give you the nasty response you wanted and i i think that you know those theatrics i mean i i guess you could argue they weren't necessarily that helpful um in covering the news that's happening um but i i think certainly uh certainly the the, the acrimony there was you know true when the cameras were on but you know when they were off i i think that a, his approach to people was perhaps a little bit different than was so, uh, totally realized. That makes sense. So you're thinking that perhaps um, in general, and maybe some reporters did do this, but if you sort of go in without assumptions uh, and a smile on your face, you could get more news um, and get a better response. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. Well, you know, I certainly found that um, we uh, interviewed uh, Trump President Trump last year twice in the Oval Office. And, you know, you, you could really, I mean, he's someone who is totally unfazed by the topics. And if, if, if you ask him a question politely, uh, he's going to give you a real answer. Um, and so, you know, one, one of the examples, you know, I, I'd like to think about is uh, he hadn't commented amazingly in his almost four years as president on D.C. statehood. No one had asked him. He never said anything. So I asked him, you know, politely in the Oval Office, uh, you know, D.C. statehood. Um, you know, you haven't said anything about this. You, you didn't even say anything as a candidate about this. You know, what's your stance? And he gave a remarkably honest answer, which, you know, really, I think, fundamentally changed the debate in a more honest direction. He said, uh, you know, we're not going to have two more Democratic senators unless we have some very stupid Republicans in Congress. It will never happen. D.C. will never be a state because we do not want more Democrats in Congress. And that, you know, when the article came out, people were circulating and saying, oh, my goodness, he said, you know, what no one was willing to say. You know, everyone was talking about what the founding fathers thought D.C. should be. Um, but, you know, he's saying that and, you know, it, it coming as a result of being respectful and asking that question. Um, him saying that really shifted the debate. Now Mitch McConnell openly says it. He says we're not going to make D.C. a state because they will make uh, the U.S. a socialist country and they will, you know, have two more Democratic senators forever. That's now a very common line in the Republican Party. Um, and, you know, Trump really opened the door to people saying what was always true all along that there are political reasons uh, for this as well. Yeah, that's a that's a great example. Thanks. Um, I'm curious, have they, ha, do you know if he commented or if other Republicans have commented on uh, the idea of Puerto Rico becoming a state? You know, he, uh, I, I'm sure you, you remember his, well, maybe you don't, but uh, no, he, he had a, a pretty nasty clash with the San Juan Puerto Rico mayor. And yeah, I yeah, yeah, I do recall that, that now. Uh, he, he said that he, I, I believe if I'm remembering correctly, he's, President Trump said that he would be fine with Puerto Rico being a state, but they just aren't ready yet because they were electing that woman as mayor. <laughs> so. <laughs> Got it. Um, okay, so now uh, I'd like to transition to your thoughts. Obviously, we've had a lot less time with Biden as president, but uh, how do you think the media has done overall covering uh, our new president? You know, I, I think uh, some reporters have, have done a lot better of a job than might have been anticipated. Um, you know, I, I think that overall there's been uh, there's there's not necessarily been the treatment that Obama received when he took office, and everyone loved President Obama, and you know you couldn't find very many people saying a bad word. I, I think that a lot of uh, media outlets, um, you know, even ones that endorsed Biden, have been at least somewhat 
critical or at least you know had some stories that don't necessarily reflect well on the administration and that are a bit critical um so i i think certainly it's you know it's not been quite so one-sided um but you know I'm, I'm not a media pundit I'm, I'm i'm sure people could have more informed criticisms than i do sure yeah i guess my take on it that i would offer is that i think in general you're right that they perhaps have been more uh, even killed and responsible covering Biden than they were uh, covering Obama. Not that they've been perfect, but I think that might be just coming as a result of all of the chaos in the Trump presidency. And real, I think the media has realized how, how important their job is um, and how important it is to fairly criticize the president um, because the uh, it's, you know, I, I, it's an understatement to say it's an important job um, that both the press have and the president have. Um, but I think maybe we got a little too lax, um, or at least the media did, covering certain presidents, and they've seen how important their responsibility is. Um, that's just a theory. <laughs> well, you know, interesting theory. I'm glad to hear you uh, share it. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so let's see. Um yeah, so now I'm just curious. Um, you said you're not a media pundit and straight news reporter. Um, do you think uh, at some point you might want to transition into um, adjacent roles, either doing more political analysis or ever doing political opinion, or uh, do you like where you're at? No, I, th I think that once you, you go there, you don't come back. Um, mm -hmm. A lot of people our age are at the point where they're tr tr uh, transitioning to PR jobs, um, you know, that kind of stuff. I think that you know once you're an opinion writer, you're always be seen as uh, an opinion person, and I, I I don't ever want to uh, to take that route because it, it really kind of discredits discredits yourself unnecessarily. I, I feel. No, I I think yeah maybe disc well it colors I guess people's perceptions, which is which is fair. Um, you know I my opinions are out there. I never expect to be a straight news reporter, um, at least not you know covering politics. Um, I think the flip side of that, which I thought was very interesting, I had Jamie Weinstein on, and he commented that he sometimes thinks people are more willing to be candid in their interviews with him because he'll sometimes state what his opinion is. Um, he does a lot of more sort of high-level as opposed to day-to-day -day stuff. And so him offering his take, you know, as opposed to like pretending to be neutral when he's really not, he thinks sometimes give him, gives him an advantage. Um, but yeah, sure. that's just, yeah. A, and I, I know Jamie yeah. and, you know, I, I think he does a good job and there's certainly that, uh, mindset, you know, the, the Glenn Greenwald types out there, you know, everyone share your biases and, mm -hmm. uh, you know, that things will be better for it. But, uh, you know, I, I think that at least with me, I, I try, you know, as I said earlier, try not to be too firm in my opinions about anything. Um, you know, I, I think that you know, reporters should also try to be open-minded, and uh, you know, I, I, I certainly see that as my role, anyhow. No, I, I think you're doing a great job, <laughs> and I think we need uh, tons of reporters like you because um, I think Jamie has filled a niche, but in general, um, the more uh, reporters that we have trying to be objective and just reporting the facts as we see it, um, the the better off the country is going to be. Um, so final question is in keeping with the name of the show. Can you tell me about a time when you heard an argument from your critics or some you di disagreed with on an issue and thought, you know, you might have a point. Yes. Yeah, so I, I thought about this and, you know, 
One, one of my uh, favorite things to do, at least during the Trump era, was uh, turn your critics into your sources. And oftentimes people, oftentimes people uh, you know, who reach out with you, they're upset with something you wrote or you feel like they didn't, they feel that you didn't give uh, their side of the story or the, the full picture. And you know, oftentimes that's true. And that's simply because you haven't heard from those people and made those connections. Um, so I, I certainly have heard from people and you know, I, I used to really enjoy doing it. You know, people would write you an email saying they really didn't like the story. Um, and you're, you have the opportunity to build a relationship with those people and uh, to say, you know, yes, you know, I, I agree that you have a valid point of view and I'd like to talk to you more in the future about it. Um, so I, I think certainly uh, the, there were those moments. And I, I think, um, I think, yeah, as, as you said, oftentimes people did have a point and there was an opportunity to move forward in a way that made them happy, but, you know, also helped improve your reporting. Yeah, that's a really interesting answer. I love how, hearing how people answer this um, final question because uh, it depends on their vocation. It's and a so good one. A, it's a good yeah, one. I liked it. Thanks. Thanks. Um, all right. Well, with that, uh, I think we're done. Stephen Nelson, thanks so much for coming on. You might have a point. Great. Thanks. Thanks again for having me. Absolutely. That's all for today. If you have any feedback, please feel free to reach out. You can find my contact details in the show notes. Please also take a moment to rate and review the podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening and take care.